comes from Matthew chapter 14. If you have your Bibles, you can flip over there. You can follow along with me on the screen. We're in a series. I think, um, yep, there we go. We're getting it. We're in a series um, looking at the life of the great man of God, Peter, the apostle Peter. And so what we're doing is uh, we're looking at episodes where Peter in the Gospels plays a primary character. And then we're going to go to the book of Acts and look at episodes there where Peter plays a primary character. And then later in the fall, we'll get into his two letters that he writes that are part of the New Testament, First and Second Peter. But today, um, our text is where Peter walks out on the water. He sees Jesus walking on the water, asks, hey, can I come join you? And he comes out and walks on the water with Jesus. We're going to read the tail end of the story, and then we're going to go back and work our way toward that um, part of the text. Um, if you would, let's stand to our feet for the reading of God's Word, Matthew chapter 14, starting at verse 30. Again, this is the wrap-up of the story. Um, when Peter's already out there on the water. Here we go, verse 30. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. You may be seated. Thank you so much. Um, before we dive into these verses, I want to point out a couple of things uh, leading up to this particular text. And that is that in earlier this same day, so this is in the wee hours of the morning that this episode where Jesus walks in the water takes place. It's dark outside the Sea of Galilee. Earlier that, morning, or earlier that day, actually in the evening, Jesus feeds the 5,000. So you've got all these people. The Bible actually says that it was 5,000 men plus the women and children. So the Bible is telling us that there was um, all these people, they were gathered around the Sea of Galilee and um, Jesus, and there's no, it's kind of getting in toward evening. Uh, the, the disciples ask, hey, shouldn't you dismiss these people to go back home so that they can get something to eat, so they can rest for the evening? So Jesus says, hey, bring me a couple of fish, bring me some loaves of bread, and he transforms that into a feeding of the 5,000. Um, I've got a map for you here that kind of shows you the Sea of Galilee, that where the feeding of the 5,000 takes place. If you look at that map in the northwest corner along the north along the western uh, bank, there's a place called the Plain of Gennesaret. In just a little while, not yet, but in just a little while, we're going to show you a little video clip that shows some of this, what it looks like in real life. But they're, um, they're on the Plain of Gennesaret, just south of Capernaum. Let's take a look at verse 22. It says, Immediately after Jesus fed the 5,000, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. Notice the word immediately. Jesus hustled the disciples out of the picture. We learn over in John's gospel that after um, his great miracle of feeding these people, that the crowd wanted to install Jesus as the king of Israel. In other words, they wanted to seize Jesus, take him to Israel, and install him as their new king. John reports, John chapter 6 and verse 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew from the crowd to the mountain by himself. So Jesus was not ready for this. He was not ready to be installed as king. Um, he, this was not his program. This was not his process for being installed in this way. His agenda was to go to the cross. And then the uh, events would unfold after that. He did not want to become an elevated politician that the people had installed. That's not what he was interested in. So Jesus puts the disciples in a boat. He says, hey, look, y'all get out of here. He points the bow of the boat toward the eastern shore of the of Sea of Galilee. And he says, y'all head that way. Get away from all this misguided talk. Get away from all this misguided information and thoughts. And y'all head over to the other opposite side. Back to our map real quick. So they're out on the northwestern shore, and Jesus turns the bow of the boat to the east. He wants the disciples to head across the lake. Remember, the lake is about six or seven miles across at its widest point. Also notice that the text says, verse 22, that he wanted the disciples to get into the boat and go before him to the other side. In other words, Jesus was communicating to them his intent that he was going to meet them on the other shoreline. 
Now, I don't know that it occurred to any of the disciples. Uh, we learned this the next morning, but that there was no other boats on that shoreline at that time. Jesus just put the disciples in the only boat that was available for them to cross over. And I don't know if the disciples understood that Jesus' mode of transportation was going to be walking across the water to get to the other side. Perhaps it just didn't even occur to them. But anyhow, they figured, well, he said he's going to meet us over there. I guess he's going to meet us over there. Um, so they got in the boat and they went. Verse 23. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. Now, I've got a couple of pictures for you here. These pictures are of the Aramos Cave. Aramos in Greek means lonely, the lonely cave or lonely mountain. And uh, this is a spot that is traditionally thought to be where Jesus went to pray. It's on the cliffs overlooking the Sea of Galilee, uh, there in the plain of Gennesaret on the western shore. No one knows for sure that this is the spot where Jesus went to pray, but it's in the proximity in the area where he fed the 5,000, um, and this is what tradition holds. Um, I share this with you just so you can get a sense of what Jesus is seeing. So he's up in this Aramos cave or somewhere along these cliff edges, and he's looking out across the Sea of Galilee. He can look down from the spot. He can see for miles out across the water. He can see little boats dotted across the, uh, across the, the waters, uh, perhaps fishermen that are out there beginning to fish for the evening. Perhaps he can even make out the disciples trying to row their way across the lake. Um, and then there's Jesus up on this mountain spending some quality time alone with the Father. Meanwhile... Out on the lake, verse 24. The boat by this time was a long way from the land. John's gospel tells us that they had gone about three or four miles. And then Matthew gives us a weather report. He says that the boat was beaten by the waves or buffeted by the waves for the wind was against them. In other words, remember, they're heading from west to east. And so that means the wind was coming. It was a westerly wind. It was in their face. They were in a headwind. Um, and it was impeding their progress across the lake. Now, here's where our video clip comes in. Y'all just watch this. I'm going to talk for a little bit. Um, this is some footage of folks out on the Sea of Galilee near Capernaum. You can see kind of the visual of, it, of the Google Earth type map uh, zooming in there. Um, and so you can see the as, when we get into the water, you'll see some of the turbulence of the waves. These are actual pictures from the northwest corner near Capernaum of the Sea of Galilee. So this is how that water gets turned up. Um, and so the disciples were heading into this. They didn't have tacking ability with their sailboat. It was either the wind was blowing behind us and we were going the way of the wind, or we were dropping the sails and we were rowing. And so the disciples were rowing at this point, going into a headwind, into a westerly wind. Let me talk about the wind for just a moment. Out on the Sea of Galilee, there are predictable weather patterns. And one of those that the wind, is that the winds typically come out of the east, blowing to the west. These winds are fed by cool air flowing down from the mountains. Remember, the Sea of Galilee is the second lowest body of water in the world. The lowest body of water in the world is this Dead Sea. Um, the Sea of Galilee sets somewhere around 700 feet below sea level. And so all the surrounding mountains, the cool air comes down, blows down across the warm air on the Sea of Galilee, and it churns up these winds. So the disciples traveling east are being met with a strong headwind, a westerly wind, and that depiction represents an accurate description of real-world weather patterns out on the Sea of Galilee. You say, Gordon, who cares? Sounds like something you just did in your office this week and you had fun and you just wanted to share it with everybody. No, actually it matters because if the Bible had said that they were traveling to the west and they were met with a strong nighttime easterly wind, then the critics of the Bible would have said, see, the Bible is wrong. The Bible is depicting winds coming across the Sea of Galilee from the, from the, uh, from the west 
and so they were easterly winds, and so that would not be the way things work in the, in the Sea of Galilee, and they would have said, see, the Bible is just a bunch of made-up stuff, and it's not real. But what we find in the Bible is that the Bible depicts a westerly wind at night, which is what you get on the Sea of Galilee, because the Bible is trustworthy and true. It depicts real-world world weather patterns that are consistent with that region. Verse 25. Verse 25 provides us with a time frame for all of these. Those were some pretty big waves, by the way. Don't you think? Okay. Verse 25. Verse 25 provides us with a time frame for all of these events. It says, In the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. That phrase, the fourth watch of the night, was a Roman military term, and it referred to the fourth of the guard duties in the middle of the night. They broke up their guard duties into four different watches, and so the fourth watch was between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., And so that's when the disciples are out there on this water, when they see Jesus coming. They've been rowing all night. They've been laboring all night. Remember, Jesus set them off in the evening. So they've been out there all this time up against these waves. Well, Jesus told us to go to the other side, so we're going to go to the other side. And they're out there rowing and making their way. Um, They look out through the sweat dripping off their brow with the waves crashing across their bow. And they see a man walking out on this water. You say, Gordon, hold on. Hold on for just a minute. Let me just ask you an honest question. Do you really believe that Jesus walked on the water? Do you really think that, that this, this event really happened? Or is the Bible, is this just kind of one of those things where, you know, somebody told a story and the next thing, the next person down the line, three down the line, they're like, oh, this thing, well, listen to this. And then the story got embellished. And the next thing you know, uh, you know, Jesus is out there walking on the water. Is this not just some sort of mythical tale? I mean, is there any evidence that you have? to prove that Jesus really did walk on the water? Well, that's a great question. And actually, there is evidence that Jesus really did walk on the water. Let me share this with you. i got three evidences for you. Uh, we are reading Matthew's gospel. And do you know where Matthew was at the time when Jesus was walking on the water? You, you got it right. Say it. He's in the boat. He's in the boat. That means Matthew was an eyewitness of Jesus walking on the water. John also records in his gospel about Jesus walking on the water. Where was John when Jesus walked on the water? He was also in the boat. That's right. So we've got two people who are eyewitnesses to this event. And friends, typically in most courtrooms in America, an eyewitness account is admissible evidence. You say, Gordon, don't you get it? I mean, these two guys could have gotten together on this. They could have lied about this with the other disciples. They could have corroborated their story, put this thing out there, all in an attempt to pump up Jesus' reputation. I mean, isn't that possible that that's what they did? Well, that is possible that what they did. But notice what John says about the crowds the next morning. John chapter 6 and verse 22. On the next day, the crowds that remained on the other side of the sea, the people back on the plain of Gennesaret on the western shore, say that there had been only one boat. So they acknowledged there was only one boat that Jesus put his disciples. He fed all these people. I mean, what, 10,000 people standing around the shoreline. Jesus feeds all these people. He puts his disciples in one boat. They see the boat launch, and they know that Jesus is not in that boat. They say there had been only one boat here at the water's edge, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples the evening before had gone away alone. That is, they had departed without the Lord Jesus. And in the next verse it says that people hopped into their boats, and they went across to the other side because they had heard that Jesus was over on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. We want some more of Jesus. So they hop in their boats, and they go over to the other side where Jesus is. Um, and they're stunned. They're, they're perplexed by this. Verse 25, when they found Jesus on the other side of the sea, they inquired, Rabbi, when did you get here? In other words, how did you get here? 
We saw the only boat on the shoreline get loaded up with your disciples, and it headed across the lake last night. We know that there were strong winds last night. We've lived around this lake our whole life, and we saw, we heard the waves. We felt the wind. We know what that was like. I mean, you didn't row by yourself. That's a seven-mile shot across that lake. How did you get over here? Um, so what we, what we discover here is that the crowds, not only are there two eyewitness accounts of Matthew and John who are in the boat, but we also have the recognition of the crowd that there was only one boat and that Jesus was not in it. So the crowd is stunned by this. Finally, the third evidence is the martyrdom of Matthew. Matthew blazed a trail for the gospel in Ethiopia and northern Africa. He was executed by the king of Ethiopia. Um, my point here is that Matthew, who wrote this, who wrote what we're reading here, was willing to die to defend what he wrote, to defend the Lord Jesus. He was willing to defend his account of who Jesus is. You know, it is rare that someone would give their life for something that they believe in. It does happen, but it's rare in our world. It is, however, unlikely, we might even say unthinkable, that someone would give up their life for something that they knew to be a lie. Something for us to think about. Back to Matthew chapter 14 and verse 26. The disciples see a human figure walking out on the water. They know that it's, what they're seeing is impossible. And so the only logical conclusion, the only logical explanation they can come up with, if this is logical, is that what they're seeing is, verse 26, a ghost. And they cried out in fear. So... They're all over there biting their fingernails. They're down on their knees. They're weak in their knees. No one knows what to think. No one knows what to make of this fact that there's a person, a human being, appears to be a human being out there in the water. So they figure, look, it must be an apparition. It must be a ghost of some kind. Verse 27. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Jesus reveals himself to them. He said, Hey, fellas, it is me. Now, in the Greek, the word that he says there is emi ego. And there is a translation dating back to, I don't know, 2nd century, something like that, maybe even before that. I don't know when the Septuagint was written. But there's a Greek translation of the Old Testament um, that exists. And the Greek translation of Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14, where Moses says, Who are you, Lord? The Greek words, that God's response is, ego or emi ego, which is translated, I am that I am. Those same words are right here. That's what Jesus just said to them when he's out on the water. A me, a go. He just said, I am that I am. How cool is that? Who do you think Jesus was letting them know who he was? Verse 28, he says, don't be afraid. Verse 28, Peter asks if he can walk out on the water to Jesus. Verse 29, Jesus says, come on. Peter gets out of the boat and he walks to Jesus. He actually makes it all the way to Jesus. Look at what verse 29 says. It says, he came to Jesus standing side by side with the Lord Jesus out in this water. Imagine the scene for a moment. The waves are still buffeting the boat. It's dark. Perhaps, as we said earlier, the moon is out, but the water is rough, and so there's no moonlight reflecting off the water. Imagine Jesus is inside at 10 or 15 feet from this boat. I mean, he's not a ways off. He's probably pretty close in. I mean, the only way that Jesus, they could have heard what Jesus had to say is if he shouted, if he was a ways off, and the Bible gives no indication that Jesus was shouting. I think he walked right up to where they were. Um, Peter steps over the gunwale of the boat, puts a little weight on the ball of his foot, tests the water to see if it'll hold. Feels firm. Something special's happening. Does Peter's foot go up and down and bob up and down as the waves are moving underneath him? I don't know. Does Peter even get wet? I, I don't know. 
All that we know or all that's reported was that Peter was able to walk out to Jesus on top of the water. Now, I want to stop here for a moment. I want to raise a question. My question is this. What do you suppose the biblical authors, or why do you suppose the biblical authors chose to include this story in their account of Jesus' life? Why did the biblical author, why did Matthew include this in his gospel? I mean, of the thousands of stories and miracle accounts that he could have told about Jesus. I mean, remember he had a crowd of 5,000 there, plus women and children. He was healing people by the hundreds on a daily basis. And out of all of those thousands, tens of thousands of stories, Mark tells us at the end of his gospel, he says, if we were to write down everything that Jesus did, I mean, the number of books in the world couldn't contain all that he did. And out of all of those stories that he had to choose from, why did he choose this? Why did he say, why did he decide to put this story in there? Matthew tells us about Jesus walking on the water. Mark tells us about Jesus walking on the water. John in his gospel talks about Jesus walking in the water. Although neither Mark nor John include the bit about Peter walking on the water. We'll get to that in a bit. But why do any of these biblical writers choose to tell the story of Jesus walking on the water? Well, for me, the answer is quite clear. This story demonstrates in a way that is profound that Jesus is not just flesh and blood. The laws of the universe do not apply to him. Why? Because of who he is. Because we're not dealing with a normal human being here. We're dealing with God in the flesh. Isn't that what the disciples conclude? Verse 33, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. Friends, we don't worship human beings. We worship God. We worship the divine. And that's what they concluded about Jesus. They were finally coming around to the fact that Jesus, who keeps calling God his own father, that this is God wrapped up in human flesh. The second person of the Trinity, God in human form. Years later, John would open up his gospel with these words, John chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the word, referring to Jesus, and the word was with God, and the word Jesus was God. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So why did the biblical authors select this story from amongst the thousands of miracles that they could have reported? I think it's because they wanted us to grasp who Jesus is. Jesus is God. They wanted us to say right along with them, truly, this is the Son of God. All right, well, perhaps, uh, maybe that was a little bit of a rabbit trail to share that with you. But again, something that occurred to me this week, and I wanted you to know it. Uh, Let's finish up the story. Verse 30. But when Peter saw the wind, he was afraid. You know, Peter's comfort level was inside of the boat. Peter had grown up out on boats. He'd been out with his dad in the boat. He'd been out with his grandfather in the boat. I mean, this was in the family business. Again, Peter probably spent more time out on the Sea of Galilee than he had spent on land. Um, He was a nighttime fisherman. It's his trade. It's what he did. I mean, the guy, smelly fish to him was a a sweet, savoring smell. Um, It's just what he was used to. Um, Outside of the boat, unfamiliar territory. He's not used to spending time out there. Um, so after a moment or two of standing there and being all of what's happening, it starts to dawn on Peter where he is at. He has disembarked a perfectly sturdy sailing vessel. What am I doing? Why am I out here? What have I done? Um, and he's realizing I'm some distance away. He's standing in rough seas. And so he looks around. He begins to survey his surroundings, and his surroundings get the better of him. And he begins to panic. He begins to get anxious. And he begins to sink down into the water. End of verse 31, Peter cries out, Lord, 
save me. You know, you got to give it to Peter that at least he knew where to look for help. He didn't clamor for the boat and doesn't say that he went swimming back for the boat. Doesn't say that he hollered out to the disciples, somebody throw me a line, right? Man overboard. Um, no, he looked to the Lord Jesus um, and cried out to him. Verse 31, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of Peter. Because remember, Peter had come all the way to where Jesus was. He was standing right next to him, just reached down, grabbed his hand, pulled him up out of the water. Oh, you have little faith, Jesus said. Why did you doubt? Now, was Jesus chastising Peter in that moment? Perhaps a little. Perhaps a little. Not so much that he was willing to help him, or not so much that he was not willing to help him, but enough that he wanted to drive him a very important point in what for Peter would be a teachable moment. Peter, uh, he says, the next time you get in a tight spot, because there are going to be some more tight spots that show up in your life, the next time you get in a tight spot like this, remember, keep your eyes on me. Keep your eyes on me. And Peter says, oh, I got the lesson. No problem. Verse 32 wraps it up. Verse 32, when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Notice that the wind, it says the wind ceased. It says it started to die down. It doesn't say that gradually things became calm. It says that everything stopped. There was a gale blowing. It's like somebody flipped the switch, and now there's nothing. Again, further evidence that who we're dealing with here is the God of the universe. Tell him you're calling back. All right, well, that concludes our passage for today. And so that means it's time for us to stop and ask our most important question. What difference does all this make to my life? As I was thinking about that, I honestly think we could stay here all afternoon drawing applications from this text. I mean, it's a wonderful story, and there's so many things that bounce back and forth between what Peter experienced, what the disciples experienced, what the people on the shoreline experienced, and your life and mine. I have funneled it down in the interest of time to just two. So uh, we'll, we'll, let's take a look at those. The first difference that this makes to your life and to mine is that if Jesus is God, and if the natural laws of the universe do not apply to him like they don't apply to God the Father, then that means that the promises Jesus made us, Jesus is able to keep. The promises Jesus made us, Jesus is able to keep. And what are some of those promises? Well, how about John chapter 3 and verse 16? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but will have eternal life. Friends, God promises us eternal life in heaven. Jesus said, you believe in me, I'll give you this gift. He has the power to follow through on his promise. How about John chapter 14 and verse 1? Jesus said, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Verse 2, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And here's the promise, verse 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. What a comforting thought to know that those who have gone before us, we will see again. Because the God of the universe promised us that we would. To know that when I put my total faith and my trust in Jesus' work on the cross as my sole means for getting into heaven, that when I do that, Jesus secures for me a place in the heavenlies. Friends, that helps me face the day. It helps me go through this life without fear and without anxiety. I don't have to wander around wondering where my loved ones are, wondering about what might happen to me next. And this confidence is possible because of who Jesus is. He is God in the flesh. He is the God hyphen man Friends, the promises that Jesus makes us, he has the power to keep. 
Second difference, number two, that this makes to your life and to mine, is that like Peter, we need to remember to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. To keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. You know, Peter is not the only one whose situation and surroundings sometimes get the better of him. We have this tendency in our own lives to see what's happening around us, to see some of the troubles or some of the setbacks that are going on or some of the sorrow that we have in our heart or some of the obstacles that are in our way and to let those things get the better of us. It's easy when the waves get bigger to take our eyes off the Lord. But remember who we are dealing with here in the person of Jesus. We are dealing with God in the flesh. We are dealing with the God of the universe. Jesus is saying to us, just like he's saying to Peter, hey, y'all, next time something like this happens, keep your eyes fixed on me. The writer of Hebrews says it this way. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Verse 2. Looking where? To our troubles? No. Looking to our setbacks? No. Looking to our obstacles that are in our way? Again, no. We should be looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Um, This past Friday, I was driving, heading down the road, and I was thinking about some stuff that I had coming up that I needed a timely response to. Um, And so the timely response that I needed, though, was sitting in some paperwork at a high-rise in Atlanta. You know what I'm talking about here. This is just an office full of paperwork that people are shuffling this way and that way. And it's important to me, and I need a response in a timely manner, but I know that it's just making its way through uh, an office, uh, making its way through a big stack. And so um, I was just kind of beginning to get anxious about this because I needed to know about this thing, and I need to know about it in a timely manner. And so I had, I said, well, I'm going to call this company, I'm going to ask them if they would to give me some indication of where we're at in the process. And so I called them up, and the lady was not reassuring at all. She said, oh, it'll take at least another 30 days for you to hear back about any of that. And I needed to know, like, next week. And so uh, I sent an email off to the company as well, thinking, well, hey, maybe somebody out in the email world will catch this thing. And so I was driving down the road. All this is Friday morning. So I'm driving down the road, and the anxiety is beginning to grow. My frustration is beginning to grow. And I feel powerless to do anything to help my situation out. I called the company. I emailed the company. And they're telling me it's going to be over a month before I hear anything. Well, as I'm driving down the road, the Holy Spirit prompts me and says, Have you prayed about it? Not to be cliche here. But the Holy Spirit said, Have you prayed about it? Have you taken this issue before the God of the universe? Have you asked him to work on your behalf? Remember, This is the God who walks on water. And so I prayed, and I prayed sincerely, and I prayed some more. And I asked God, I petitioned heaven for someone on the other end of that high-rise in Atlanta to discover my paperwork and to get back to me in a timely fashion. I drove another minute or so, and I thought, you know what, I'll just check my email. I know God can work. But I don't think he's going to work that quickly, right? I pulled up my email, and wouldn't you know that as I was praying, someone was on the other end typing out an email response to me to say, I'm on your case. I got your situation. I'm working out this. I'm working the problems. And so we had a little email exchange, the two of us, back and forth over the next, uh, I don't know, 30 minutes or so. She had some follow-up questions. 
I mean, this was not just somebody who was acknowledging that they had received. Yes, we have received your email request. We have, we have received your problem. We will get to it. This was not one of those. This was somebody who was proactively working on my request and said, I will let you know by next Wednesday. What's all this mean for you and me? Friends, it means that in life, there are no waves so big, no problems so great that our God cannot handle. And if our God has to suspend the natural laws of the universe to get it done, it's well within his reach. Our responsibility is to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. And when we keep our eyes fixed on him, we are able spiritually and emotionally to walk on top of anything. Let me close with those words again from Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Let's pray. Most gracious God, we thank you for just another reminder that you are the God who walks on water. That, Lord, the the laws that we live by that govern our experience of this world, Lord, that you wrote those laws. You're the author of them. And that nothing is impossible with you. God, perhaps this morning there's some big waves in some of our lives. Some things, Lord, that are creating anxiety. Some things that are creating uncertainty. Or whatever that may be. Just remind us fresh and new. That nothing is too big for you. Or may we, in this time of communion, begin to affix our eyes on you. Lord, we are thankful for your broken body, your shed blood, for the sacrifice that you made on our behalf. Holy Spirit, work and encourage our hearts, we pray, in this time of communion. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.